Good morning, Baylife. How are we? Doing well? Happy New Year to you, almost. I guess it's New Year tomorrow. New Year's tomorrow. Uh, Well, so it is the morning of New Year's Eve, uh, and I want to invite you, rather than looking forward for a moment to look back with me, turn to the Old Testament, the book of 1 Kings, chapter 1, we'll be beginning in verse 5. Uh, And I recognize that in a room with this many people, there's certainly a lot of you who I know and quite a few of you who I've never met before. Uh, Maybe some of you came to our Christmas Eve services and you're thinking, this is not the guy who was up here then. Who on earth are you? Uh, My name is Travis, and I am the college and career pastor here at Baylife, which means that I spend my Thursday nights with the 18 to 28-year-olds in our church. Uh, We gather together around the scriptures. uh, We worship together. We talk about what it means to follow Jesus uh, in that critical window of life. But one of the other things that I get to do that I absolutely love is I get to teach our foundations courses. And maybe you've never heard of that before, but foundations is this resource that we offer you all as a church to dive into some of the deeper issues of faith. And so we teach classes on things like systematic theology. We teach uh, Old Testament and New Testament survey. Uh, And my favorite thing to teach, which I'm kind of preparing for over these next few weeks, is church history. Uh, So I've been going back through my notes uh, that... I put together during the last semester and making sure that I have some idea of what I'm talking about so I don't look like a total fool when I get up there and have to explain it. And one of the things that has happened for me over these last few weeks as I've been kind of reviewing the church history stuff that I'm going to be teaching is God has just increased my gratitude for the fact that I live on this side of the 2,000 years of Christian history rather than some of the earlier periods. Uh, And what I mean by that and kind of where I'm going with that is that so often we look at the problems in our world, uh, we look at the questions that are being asked of Christians, and we think that we're the first people who've ever had to deal with it. We think that we're the first ones asking these questions, we think that we're the first ones wrestling with these issues, and, and to be honest, sometimes we feel ill-equipped to deal with the questions that are being brought up. And I'll be honest, we probably are ill-equipped to deal with the questions being brought up. Fortunately, in 2,000 years, there's been a lot of really smart people who've answered, answered the questions for us. And one of the things I was reminded of was a particular individual, a man named Marcion, who lived around 150 AD. And Marcion was looking at the Old Testament, uh, and he he grew increasingly troubled because he felt like the God that he saw in the Old Testament was really mean and really judgmental and really angry, and the God he saw in the New Testament wasn't. And so Marcion proposed this solution. Well, it seems like the God in the Old Testament is different, so let's just check it out. He didn't stay a church leader for very long. Uh, He lost his job because his proposed solution was a bad one. It wasn't a, a great approach to understanding how the Old and New Testament fit together. And if we're being honest, uh, as Christians in this room, if you would count yourself a Christian, we would say, that's not a good idea. I hope you would say that, at least. But we do tend to struggle sometimes with what to do with the Old Testament. We do tend to wrestle with uh, what we should do with all of these stories and Psalms and Proverbs. How does this all fit together? The, The New Testament seems so much easier Uh, Why not just read the Gospels? Why not just read the letters of Paul? And so what tends to happen is we come to the Old Testament and we sort of moralize it. And so we we take these stories and we treat them like Aesop's fables and we say things like, well, be like David and slay your giants. Uh, Be like Abraham and live a life of faith. But then that doesn't work with certain stories. 
Be like Samson and don't cut your hair. I mean, like, you just can't totally apply that. And yet, that's not really the way that the New Testament treats the Old Testament. That's not really the way that Jesus views the Old Testament. That's not the way that the apostles view the Old Testament. They don't see it as this collection of stories about how you can be a better person and have your best life now. No, they see it as a collected body of work that bears witness to the only good person. It's, it's not uh, just some fun little bits of wisdom so you can be wiser. It's the one who bears witness to the wisdom of God incarnate in Jesus. The Old Testament is not meant to terminate on itself, but it's meant to point us to Christ. And I believe that our text in 1 Kings does that. But if we're going to spend um, as much time as we will this morning in 1 Kings, it's probably helpful for us to know a little bit about what we're reading, uh, not to just pick up a book with no background. So, so just some brief introduction to 1 Kings. What is 1 Kings? Well, strictly speaking, 1 Kings is a history book. Uh, But it's not a history book in the modern sense of the word. Modern history books tend to be exhaustive. They start from square one and they work you all the way through to a particular period of time. First Kings is documenting the history of the nation of Israel, but it assumes that you know something about Israel and it's not gonna bother to catch you up. I'm I'm not a huge Star Wars fan. I like Star Wars, but I like Star Wars for roughly the two weeks before and after a new movie comes out. So you can call me like a Fairweather fan if you want, if you're like a diehard Star Wars guy, or maybe you're a Trekkie, and that, I've just offended you deeply. But for the two weeks leading up to a new Star Wars movie, I am exhaustive in my research. I read every fan theory, I read the summaries of all of the different books that are out there that give tidbits of clues as to what might be in the next movie. I watch the movie, and I don't think about it again for two or three years. I'll say this without giving any, anything away, if you walk into the new Star Wars movie that's in theaters right now and have never seen Star Wars and know nothing about Star Wars, that movie will be utterly meaningless to you. It will mean nothing. It assumes, it makes an assumption. You know who all these people are, you know why they're important, you know why this happening to this person matters so much. It's kind of like First Kings. It makes an assumption. You, you know about this nation of Israel. You know about these people that are being mentioned. You know why these things matter. So if you're new to the church, or maybe you're just back for the first time, or maybe you've never just gotten a good foundation uh, for why this nation called Israel is so important, let me just give you kind of a brief summary of about 2,000 years of history, if that's even possible. So 2,500 BC, God speaks to a man named Abraham. And he says, I want you to leave your home country. I want you to leave your father and mother. I want you to take your wife, take your servants, take your flocks, and I want you to go start a new country. That's, a, that's just a crazy thing to me, that you can just kind of leave where you are and just start your own country. Can't do that anymore, but that's what Abraham does. And God says, this country that you're starting, this nation that you're founding, it's gonna be different from every other nation in the world. Not, not different just for the sake of being different, but it's gonna be different for the sake of blessing the nations of the world. In you will all the families of the world be blessed. And this nation that Abraham starts begins with Abraham and his son Isaac. And pretty soon, this nation falls into slavery in Egypt for nearly 400 years. 
at which point a man named Moses is sent by God who delivers these people from slavery into Egypt. He leads them through the wilderness to this land that has been promised to them. So now they're not just a people group. They're a nation with a country with borders, a nation that's supposed to be different, a nation that's supposed to be different for the sake of blessing all the other nations of the world. But their problem is the exact problem that anybody who's ever been in middle school feels. When you look around and you're different from everybody else, it means you stand out. And I I don't know about you, but when I was in middle school, the last thing I wanted to do was stand out. I wanted to look and talk and be like everybody else so that no one would notice me so that I wouldn't get picked on. I would assume it's the same for people in middle school even today. And this is Israel's problem. We're supposed to be different from all the other nations, but we don't want to be different. We, we don't want to look weird. We don't want to have these customs that make us strange. And so there's this constant pull. Are we going to be different or are we going to be just like everybody else? One of the ways that Israel compromises their uniqueness is by demanding a king. Uh, they say to God, we would like a king like all the other nations. And so God obliges, he gives them a man named Saul as their king. And from external appearances, Saul seems like he's going to be a great king. The Bible goes into a pretty good amount of detail about the fact that tall is Saul is tall. Saul is the tallest man in Israel, so he's imposing, he's an ominous looking king. Uh, he's the best hunter in Israel, so he's strong. He's incredibly handsome, apparently, and I realize that standards of beauty change from one culture to another, so I don't know if we're talking about like a Brad Pitt sort of handsome or another sort of handsome. But he's apparently very good looking, and he's an absolutely horrific king. Ain't just, isn't that just the way it goes, though? It looks great on the outside, and he turns out to be a pretty ugly person on the inside. And so the kingship is removed from Saul, and it's given to the most unlikely of people, this shepherd boy named David. Now, David is nothing like Saul, he's not externally impressive. Apparently, he's not very tall. Apparently, he's not very attractive. He's actually so forgettable that his own dad forgets him. Uh, There's an instance where Nathan has been sent to find the king of Israel. God says, you need to go to this family. It's going to be one of these sons. And so Nathan goes to David's dad, and he says, I need to see your sons. One of your children is going to become king. And he lines up every son but David. And Nathan says, none of these are going to be the king. Do you have another one? Oh, yeah. There's one more. But he's out in the field playing the harp. Uh, you, he's not gonna, I promise you he's not going to be king. I've seen how tall the current king is. He's short, he's runty, he's unimpressive. He just kind of hangs out and plays songs when he feels emotional. <laughs> so David, despite all of his um, external appearances, turns out to be the best king that Israel's ever had. He turns out to be the paradigm of Israel's kings. If I can use kind of this modern example, David is uh, what JFK is to Democrats and what Ronald Reagan is to Republicans, but David is that for all of Israel. He's not perfect. Uh, He's not without sin. David makes an awful lot of mistakes, but he's this strong king who's mighty in battle, who's beloved by nearly all of the people. But David is human. And like every son and daughter of Adam, David will die. And 1 Kings launches right into that. David is no longer strong. He's no longer uh, powerful. Uh, He's no longer imposing. He is on the edge of death. 
And there is a question being asked. Who's going to be king next? Who's next in line? And that's where our passage picks up in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 5. It says, Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. He prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man. He was born next after Absalom and conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar the priest. And they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok the priest and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and Nathan the prophet and Shimei and Ray and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen and fattened cattle by the serpent's stone, which is beside Enrogel. He invited all his brothers, the king's sons, all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet or Benaiah or the mighty men or Solomon his brother. So this is the scene. David is on the edge of death. There's a question that's being asked outside of the palace walls. Who's next? Now, that's a pretty easy question in, in a normal nation uh, that is like every other nation that has a king and the king has sons. The next person is li- in line for the kingship when the king dies is the next oldest son of the king. But Israel's not a normal country. Israel's not a normal nation. It doesn't always work that way in Israel. Now, sometimes it does. Sometimes the kingship passes from father to son, and other times God steps in and he says, you don't get a vote in this election. I am the electoral college. He's not going to be king. He is. And this is exactly what's happened in this situation. It's not documented in 1 Kings, but in 2 Chronicles, God speaks to David, and he says, Solomon's next. It's it's not going to be Adonijah, it's not going to be Absalom, which is one of David's other sons who uh, dies earlier in the scriptures. It's not going to be either of them. Solomon is next. You don't get a say in this. Here's who it is. And David agrees. So that's what makes verse 5 such a heinous action. God has spoken. David has spoken. Here's who's next. It's Solomon. And while David is sick in bed, unable to care for himself, Adonijah is outside saying, I know what God said, I know what my dad said, but I'm going to be king. That's how this is going to be handled. I know Solomon, I grew up with Solomon. He's not terribly impressive. He's not very tall or handsome. I'll be a better king. And It seems like the the nightmare of Adonijah is something that David's produced. In verse 6, it says that his father had never at any time displeased him by saying, why have you thus done so? The surest way to break anyone is to never tell them they're wrong. Because then they'll just go on doing what they're doing until they go right off a cliff. And apparently for being a great king, David was a terrible father. Because he never at any time told his son, you can't do that. And so Adonijah continues the path that he spent his whole life, doing whatever he wants. I'll be king. It doesn't need to be Solomon. I know what God said. I know what David said. But I'll be king. And this will go just like everything else in my life. I get what I want. And so here's how he goes about it. He gathers all sorts of people to him. He gathers chariot runners. He gathers some of the priests, one named Abiathar, and they all throw a party. They throw a coronation party. 
You know, in our country, when the president is installed, there's this huge party in Washington that's thrown, and he throws something like that. He throws this feast at the center of Israel. He invites all of his brothers, all of these different men, and he leaves Solomon out. Now, you may gloss over that and think, well, you know, I've, I've been left out of parties before. It's not that big of a deal. Uh, and I would sympathize with you. I'll tell you what, I was not a very cool person in high school. I did not get invited to any of the cool parties or even the uncool parties. Nobody invited me to anything in high school with the exception of my two friends, and they would just invite me to Taco Bell when we would hang out there and mope about our lives. So I get it. Maybe I get it too much. <laughs> Maybe I'm still a little wounded by this. But Solomon being left out of this feast that happens, this is, this is not something as, as petty as being left out of like being invited to your friend's party on the weekend. Because at the center of a kingdom in the ancient world is the king's table. And the surest sign that you're in good standing with the king is that the king will sit down and eat with you. And if the king will not sit down and eat with you, that's a pretty good sign that you should pack your bags and write your last will and testament. So the fact that Solomon is not invited to his brother's party where his brother is trying to take the kingship from him is a way of Adonijah saying, you shouldn't expect to be around much longer. I will be king. You will not. Pack your bags. Uh, you're going to go meet the good Lord. And notice where all of this happens because this is where it becomes really practical and important for us. He throws this party and sacrifices these animals by the serpent's stone. That's what we're told in verse 9. Now, some of your Bibles might call uh, the serpent stone Zoheleth, which is the Hebrew word for to slither or crawl, which is why it gets called the serpent stone. But that's really significant. That's a, that's a profound statement because you see in this an echo of Eden. It's in the Garden of Eden that the serpent attempts to undermine God's plan for humanity. God is king. And he says, but if you eat from this fruit, you can be king. You can be like God. I know how he said that this garden should run. It's a bad idea. It would be better if you were in charge. Eat from the fruit. And at the serpent stone, Adonijah says, I know how God said that Israel should be run, but I will be king. I can do it better. This matters because ultimately, Adonijah and what he does here is exactly what we do every single time we sin, without fail. Because ultimately, what sin is, especially when we know what we ought to do, if you've grown up in church, if you've heard the gospel, if you understand the, the expectations of God in the Christian life, when we reject that, when we refuse to walk in that, we say, I'll be king. No thanks. Uh, this, this Christian life of holiness, I'm not interested. I will be king of my own life. And I will do what I want. Every time we walk in anger, every time we withhold forgiveness, every time we celebrate sin in our life rather than repenting of it and mourning it, whenever we gossip, whenever we slander other people, we are there with Adonijah at the serpent stone, exalting ourselves. 
And in this view, we might as well just be frank and call sin what it is here. This is cosmic treason. This is us looking to the king and saying, I don't like your rules. In fact, I think I would be a better king than you are, so I'm going to dethrone you and put myself in your place. That's why the Bible takes sin so seriously because there is this incredible weight to what is actually being done even by the most insignificant actions. But while all this is going on outside, while Adonijah is uh, attempting to exalt himself, there's some people that aren't gonna take this coup lying down. And so we come to verse 11. We're told that Nathan says to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, have you not heard what Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become, uh, have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David, our Lord, does not know it? Now, therefore, come, let me give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to King David. Say to him, did you not, my Lord, the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then is Adonijah king? And then, while you're still speaking with the king, I also will come in after you and confirm your words. Now, uh, some people have read this passage and, and read kind of some, some ill intentions into it. So you've got Nathan, who is a friend of David his whole life, but the sort of friend who tells you what you need to hear and not what you want to hear, the sort of friend who you hate sometimes, but you know they're right, uh, that's Nathan for David. And then you have Bathsheba, which is David's wife. And some people have sort of looked at this and said that maybe there's some political conniving going on. I'll say this. Um, I am an incredibly forgetful person. Uh, in fact, if you've sent me an email before, let me just publicly repent. If I didn't respond, it was literally just because I forgot. And sometimes people will ask me questions about something that might have happened uh, days, weeks, months ago. Hey, did you say this? Or, or did you tell me to, to check out this book or this movie? And I just can't remember. I'm like, I mean, I probably did. I don't, I don't know. And so what people have kind of assumed here, uh, some people at least, is that David is old. He's forgetful. He's about to die. He hasn't said anything about Solomon being king. And his wife and his friends sort of take advantage of his oldness and say, didn't you say Solomon should be king? And David just goes, I mean, I guess so. The problem with that interpretation um, is the fact that Adonijah leaves Solomon out of the feast. Like the fact that Solomon is left out means that he knows who the king should be and he's not interested in following the rules. Now actually what seems to have happened is that David has forgotten what he actually said or is so preoccupied with his own misery, his own pain, and his own suffering that he's not interested in fixing what's going on around him. You know, I, I mentioned that, that so often sin in our lives is the result of us knowing what we ought to do and saying, I will be king. I know what I should do, but I'm gonna do what I want instead. But that's not always the case. You know, I, I grew up... Um, until about sixth or seventh grade, I went to the Anglican church, and there's a prayer of repentance that's said every week, uh, merciful God, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. And, and sometimes we sin not out of maliciousness, but because we're so caught up in what's going on in our own lives that we fail to see the world crumbling around us and care. 
We, we are so caught up in our own pain and our own suffering that we ignore the issues going on around us that we need to speak into, that we need to address. This is what seems has happened with David. He, he dies by chapter two. He's hovering right on the edge. And he's so caught up with his own life that he doesn't see what's going on around him as the kingdom burns. And we need friends like Nathan and Bathsheba who can gently say, hey, I know you've got a lot going on, but have you not heard? Do, do you not know what, you, you need to address this. And so they do. They come to David. Uh, Bathsheba approaches him first and says, hey, here's what's going on. Your son Adonijah is trying to make himself king even though you said Solomon would be king. And Nathan comes in afterwards because in Jewish court of law, you need two witnesses to confirm something. Hey, she's right. This is what's happening. We need to address it. And finally, verse 28, after Nathan spoken, David answered, call Bathsheba to me because she's left the room. And she came into the king's presence and stood before the king and the king swore saying, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do this day. Bathsheba bowed her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, may my Lord King David live forever. So he confirms this promise to Bathsheba, and then he gives this declaration Call to me Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king and the king said to them, take with you my servants, with you the servants of the Lord and have Solomon and my son ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Blow the trumpet and say, long live King Solomon, verse 38. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule. They brought him to Gihon. And there Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon and then blew the trumpet and all the people said, long live King Solomon. The people went up after him playing pipes and rejoicing with great joy. The whole question in chapter one of 1 Kings is who is the rightful king. But that's not really a valid question. The rightful king has always been Solomon. And all it took was the voice of his father to remind everyone what has always been true. I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon um, that I think the Old Testament is not just a book of moral stories that tell us how to be good or bad people but that it is ultimately a monument that bears witness to the person and work of Christ. And, and I believe that this text does that. Because what's astounding to me is that in this text, we see this question, who will be king? There's this serpentine rebellion against the true king, and the voice of the true king's father says, no, he's king. The voice of David confirms that his son is the true king the nation of Israel. 1,000 years later, another son of David will ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, much like Solomon rode in on a mule. Anointed by the Spirit at his baptism where the father says, this is my son. He's the king. And from the back of that donkey, 
from the rough-hewn wood of a Roman cross, from the empty tomb of a rich man, the true king of the whole world will dethrone the serpent who in the garden tried to steal his kingdom from him. Whatever good you see in David or Solomon mixed with a whole lot of bad, it is but a shadow cast by the fullness of the person of Christ who is the true king of the whole world. Which is why, as Jesus, the greater son of David, is talking to the Pharisees, he can say to them, someone greater than Solomon is here. But you won't listen. And the way that I see it, we've got two possible responses in our own lives. And both of these responses to the kingship of Jesus are found in this text. We can continue to be like Adonijah. We can see that Jesus is king. And we can say, I know better. I will be king. I'll be master of my own destiny. I'll live my life the way I want to. And I'll determine for myself what right and wrong are. And you may, you may be in that place right now. You may have been in that place for decades. You may spend your whole life in that place. But I just want to say, just because you live like a king does not make you a king. Any more than Adonijah was ever the true king of Israel. And at some point, that false throne will be torn down, just like Adonijah's rebellion at the serpent stone. The other option for us as a church and as human beings is to respond like the crowds that follow Solomon through the streets and they cry out, long live the king. And they rejoice with great joy. This is the great mystery of the gospel is that all of us start out as Adonijahs. All of us start out from birth saying, I will be king. All of us start out as rebels, unworthy of sitting at the king's table and absolutely deserving of death for treason. But the king himself dies in our place and brings us to the table, not as enemies, but as friends and sons and daughters. So I pray that we as a church would be a people like the crowds who follow the king and rejoice in his goodness and his kindness and his rule. Oh, that we would rejoice in the rule of Jesus our king who is good and kind and far better than Solomon could ever have hoped to have been. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, I'm grateful for the time that you give us uh, in your word every week. And Lord, we pray that you would uh, give us hearts that are receptive, um, give us hearts that love your word, that see uh, the gospel in, in all of the passages that we come to. Uh, God, make us a people who love the Old Testament. Uh, make us a people who um, see in it the shadows of the fullness of the person of Jesus. And God, we pray uh, for our church in this coming year. God, we've looked back into the Old Testament, into these events that happened nearly 3,000 years ago, but God, give us a vision now to look forward, to take what we've seen in your word and see where we ought to go as your people, as a church in this community. God, be with us this week. Bring us back together safely next week. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you next week.